Literary Devices The authors of the Bible, who wrote at the inspiration of God, used many different techniques in their writing to help emphasize the important aspects of their message. These techniques are known as literary devices. Some of them are simple and obvious. Others are a little more complicated and difficult to spot. In either case, if we take the time to get familiar with them, we'll be better equipped to see the emphasis God has placed on His Word. You don't need to memorize any of these devices to understand the Bible, but by becoming familiar with them, you'll likely find added depth and meaning in the passages you study. Below are some of the most common literary devices you'll find in the Bible, with an explanation of how they work and examples of what they look like in action. Allusion Referring to older, well-known concepts to add meaning and depth. An allusion is an indirect reference to a person, place, or event. Allusions are often subtle and unexplained. If we don't recognize the reference, it's easy to miss the allusion entirely. By referencing a story that others are familiar with, allusions allow us to express meaning and depth without having to spend time explaining what we mean. The English language is filled with popular allusions. Talking about the road less traveled is an allusion to Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. Calling someone Big Brother is an allusion to the dystopian surveillance state in George Orwell's novel 1984. If you're stuck in a catch-22, you're in an impossible situation like the one imagined by Joseph Heller in his novel of the same name. Herculean efforts, Achilles' heel, and Sisyphean tasks are all allusions to various Greek myths. We also have many allusions to the Bible. When people talk about forbidden fruits, David and Goliath situations, the prodigal son, 30 pieces of silver, turning the other cheek, or being a good Samaritan, they are making references to Bible stories and adding extra context to their statements. Many Bible passages include allusions to other Bible passages, but they're not always obvious. Knowing the source of the allusion usually adds extra insight to what's being said. Examples Paul wrote, It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 This is an allusion to the creation account in the book of Genesis, where God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1 verse 3 by referring back to the power and majesty of God's earlier act of creation, Paul reminds us that the same awesome, transforming power is present in our own lives. When Job asked God to hide me in the grave, conceal me until your wrath is past, appoint me a set time, and remember me, in Job 14.13, speaking of the time when his change would come, when God would call and Job would answer, verses 14-15, through 15, he was alluding to the future resurrection an event that would not be discussed in Scripture until centuries and millennia later. This illusion shows us that even as far back as Job, God's people had some awareness of what was waiting for them beyond this life. How much did they know? How were they told? The answer isn't clear, but it's interesting to think about. Jesus told the Pharisees, On you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Matthew 23, verse 35. By alluding to the famous martyrs who died for obeying God, Jesus was equating the Pharisees with evil men who murdered the righteous out of envy and hate. Chiasmus. Inverting ideas and concepts to emphasize a point. Chiasmus, from a Greek word for crossing, happens when an author presents multiple ideas and then revisits them in reverse order. 
John F. Kennedy's famous quote is an example of chiasmus. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The quote begins by introducing the concept of your country, then you, and it ends by mentioning you, then your country. Chiasmus is often diagrammed using letters to track ideas and concepts. For example, we could analyze Kennedy's quote like this. A. Ask not what your country. B. Can do for you. B prime, ask what you can do, A prime, for your country. The trick about chiasmus is that it can happen across short phrases or even entire books. Look up an outline of the Old Testament book of Ruth and you'll discover that the story follows a chiastic structure. It begins with the generations of Elimelech, it ends with the generations of Perez. Naomi loses her sons in Moab and returns to Israel. Naomi's return to Israel results in her gaining a grandson. Ruth declares her intent to stay with Naomi. Boaz declares his intent to redeem Naomi's household. Sometimes, chiasmus is used to draw special attention to a hinge point in the middle. This hinge is often marked with an X, which looks identical to the Greek letter that gives its name to chiasmus. For example, the book of Zephaniah begins with a promise of judgment and ends with the promise of the restoration of Israel. In between that is the coming judgment of its corrupt leaders. In between that is God's judgment on all nations. And right there, in the middle of it all, is a call to repentance in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. Translation issues sometimes make it difficult to spot chiasmus, but it's used throughout the pages of the Bible. When we find it, it's a good idea to pay close attention to the concepts God is highlighting in His Word. Examples Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Genesis 9, verse 6, ESV the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Galatians 2 verse 16. Imagery and Symbolism Painting word pictures to highlight important details. Authors often use words to paint a mental picture for their readers, a literary device known as imagery. Imagery in the Bible can serve many purposes depending on the literary form. In narrative accounts, it can help bring a story to life. In poetry, it tends to add depth of feeling. In prophecy, it often frames important depictions of future events. Often this imagery employs metaphors and similes. Symbolism is a form of imagery that has a special meaning. The imagery pictures something more than just itself. Symbolism features prominently in prophecy. Sometimes the symbol is explained, and sometimes it isn't. Common symbols in prophecy include mountains for nations, horns for kings, white for purity, and fine linen for spiritual refinement. Examples of imagery The account of David and Goliath could have been a very short story in the Bible. David trusted God and faced a giant everyone else was too scared to fight. But instead we get vivid descriptions. Goliath was carrying a spear like a weaver's beam, 1 Samuel 17 verse 7. When the men of Israel saw him, they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid, verse 24. David was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking, verse 42. 
and Goliath didn't take him seriously. By paying attention to this imagery, we can almost watch the epic story unfold around us. Rather than simply saying he cared about his people, Jesus exclaimed, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Luke 13.34 The imagery of a mother hen protecting her chicks helps convey the depth of feeling behind Christ's words. When God poured out his Holy Spirit on the New Testament church, he did so with a dramatic display. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing, mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues, as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Acts 2, verses 2-3 through three. The imagery invites us to imagine what that moment in time looked like. Examples of Symbolism Daniel saw a very specific vision involving a ram, a goat, and horns. Daniel 8, verses 1-8 through eight. The angel Gabriel explained that these were symbols picturing the first king of Greece toppling the Medo-Persian Empire, only to have his kingdom shatter into four pieces. This prophecy was fulfilled centuries later in the life and death of Alexander the Great. Zechariah was given a puzzling vision of a woman in a basket in Zechariah 5 verses 5 through 11. The woman is identified as a symbol of wickedness in verse 8, but beyond that, scholars have debated over the meaning of this prophetic imagery for centuries. John saw a vision of a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth in Revelation 12 verses 3 through 4. Later, the dragon is identified as Satan the devil, and the third of the stars appears to be a symbol for the corrupted angels who follow him. See verse 9. Simile and metaphor. Introducing a new concept by connecting it to a more familiar concept. Often, the easiest way to explain a concept is by linking it to another concept. The two main ways to do this are through similes and metaphors. In English, a simile links two concepts together by using the words like or as. If we say a room is cold as ice or hot like an oven, we're using similes. A metaphor is a simile that doesn't use connecting words. It just presents two ideas as if they were the same thing. If we say the room was an oven or that it was made of ice, we're using metaphors. The room isn't actually an oven or carved from ice. It just gives us a sense of what it feels like. Other metaphors include phrases like drowning in a sea of grief, a heart of gold, all the world's a stage, and you are my sunshine. None of these are literally true, but they explain one idea by connecting it to a feeling or experience we already understand. Examples of simile. God used two similes in condemning the leader of his people. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Hosea 5 verse 10. Jesus accused the Pharisees of being like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Luke 11 verse 44, ESV. During his vision, John saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Revelation 15 verse 2. Examples of metaphor. Isaiah told God, we are the clay, and you are potter, and we are all the work of your hand. Isaiah 64, verse 8. David called God my rock and my fortress. Psalm 18, verse 2. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine, and you are the branches. John 15, verse 5. Metonymy and Synecdoche. 
using stand-in words to refer to related concepts. Sometimes, rather than talk about a thing or a concept directly, we use words related to that thing or concept. When we do that, we're using a literary device called metonymy and synecdoche. These devices show up frequently in the Bible, and even though they might have complicated names, they're pretty easy to spot. Both these devices allow us to talk more concisely about abstract or complicated topics without having to stop and explain exactly what they mean. Metonymy happens when we use a symbol to refer to a related concept, like referring to a king or queen as the crown, or calling businessmen suits. Synecdoche happens when we use a part to refer to the whole, or the whole to refer to a part, like calling a worker a hired hand, or referring to a car as a set of wheels. Examples of metonymy. In Matthew 13, verse 15, Jesus said that the hearts of this people have grown dull. He wasn't talking about their literal blood-pumping organs. He was using heart as a stand-in for the human ability to think and feel. God promised his people that if they obeyed him, the sword will not go through your land. Leviticus 26, verse 6. It's not that God was promising to keep sharp metal blades from entering Israel. The sword here is a stand-in for military power and war. When David wrote, Keep your tongue from evil, in Psalm 34, verse 13, he wasn't concerned that the tongue itself was capable of committing evil. The tongue is a stand-in for the words we speak. Examples of synecdoche. Paul wrote that Aquila and Priscilla risked their own necks for my life, Romans 16, verse 4. It obviously wasn't just their necks that were in danger, but their entire physical existence. In this case, the neck, a single part of the body, represents the whole body. When Jesus told the apostles to preach the gospel to every creature in Mark 16, verse 15, he wasn't telling them to preach the gospel to squirrels and birds and ants. In this case, every creature, every living creature in the entirety of God's creation, really means every human being, a specific part of that creation. Caesar Augustus decreed that all the world should be registered in Luke 2, verse 1. This could not have referred to all the world as we understand it, since that would mean taking a census of kingdoms and nations Augustus had no control over or even knowledge of. Here, the whole, all the world, stands in for a specific part, the entire Roman world, as it's rendered in Luke 2, verse 1 of the NIV. Parallelism. Rhyming ideas and concepts instead of sounds. Instead of rhyming sounds, the Hebrew poetry of the Bible often focuses on rhyming ideas using a technique known as parallelism. This kind of rhyming usually happens across two or more lines of poetry that deal with a common concept. Authors use parallelism to bring special attention to an important point. Since parallelism is tied to concepts and not specific words, it translates well into other languages, making it much easier for us to understand biblical poetry. There are four main types of parallelism to look out for in Hebrew poetry. Synonymous, antithetical, synthetic, and emblematic. When we're aware of these techniques, it helps us to look closer at the point being made. Synonymous parallelism repeats or emphasizes a concept. Antithetical parallelism contrasts or mirrors it. Synthetic parallelism builds it up. Emblematic parallelism illustrates it using a figure of speech. Examples of synonymous or repeating parallelism. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. Proverbs 3 verse 11, NIV. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be numbered. 
Ecclesiastes 1 verse 15. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Proverbs 8 verse 5 ESV. Examples of antithetical, contrasting parallelism. Some trust in chariots, and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20 verse 7. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. Proverbs 10 verse 21. There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. Proverbs 13 verse 7. Examples of synthetic or building parallelism. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 10. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Proverbs 4 verse 23. I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Isaiah 1 verse 26. Examples of emblematic or illustrative parallelism. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 42 verse 1. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. Song of Solomon 2 verse 3, ESV. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Proverbs 26, verses 18 through 19. Personification and apostrophe. Describing non-human things as if they were human. Sometimes authors personify a concept. That is, they talk about something that's not human as if it were human. The wind can't really howl. Justice isn't really blind. And stars can't really wink. But it's easier to describe these things in terms we can relate to. Apostrophe is a special kind of personification where the author speaks directly to a concept or a thing as if it were capable of hearing and responding. Examples of personification. God asked Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Genesis 4 verse 10. David wrote, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. Psalm 98 verse 8. The book of Proverbs frequently personifies wisdom as a woman, especially in chapter 8, where she is pictured as crying out to simple ones and fools, Proverbs 8, verses 4 through 5. Examples of apostrophe. Through Hosea, God addressed the concepts of death and the grave, or Sheol in Hebrew. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Hosea 13, verse 14, ESV. David asked, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Psalm 42, verse 5, ESV. Isaiah called, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Isaiah 44, verse 23. Wordplay. Using the sounds and meanings of words in a clever or unexpected way. Wordplay is a literary device that appears frequently in the Bible, but it rarely survives the translation process. Wordplay, also known as puns or paranomasia, involves arranging words in such a way that their similar sounds or double meanings 
convey something beyond what is literally written. For example, in English we can say, seven days without food makes one week. Here, the pun revolves around the meanings of week and week, which sound identical. Seven days makes one calendar week, and seven days without food makes a person week. Calling a commentator an everyday potato is another pun. Commentator sounds a lot like commentator, and everyday is another way to say common, and tater is slang for potato. You can probably see how those examples of wordplay wouldn't make sense in other languages. They depend heavily on what specific English words mean and how they're pronounced. Commentaries can help alert us to wordplay in the Bible, which can be difficult to spot otherwise. For as the churning of milk produces butter, and the wringing of the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. Proverbs 30 verse 33. There are a few examples of wordplay happening in the original Hebrew. Churning, ringing, and forcing are all actually the same Hebrew word, but its meaning changes with each setting. The word for nose and wrath is also the same, while the word for butter, chema, sounds similar to another word for anger, chema. Micah's prophetic words in Micah chapter 1 verses 10 through 15 are filled with puns, tying the names of specific cities to specific fates. Gath is similar to the Hebrew word for tell, so in Hebrew Micah's instruction to tell it not in Gath, verse 10, sounded more like tell it not in tell. The other cities are tied to puns as well. In the house of dust, roll yourself in the dust, pass by in naked shame, you inhabitant of beautiful, verses 10 through 11, and so on. Paul wrote to Philemon about Onesimus, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Philemon 1 verses 10 through 11. The name Onesimus literally means useful. In the book of Ruth, the narrative refers to Naomi's close relative as Peloni Almoni. English Bibles tend to translate this phrase as friend, but the actual meaning is closer to Mr. So-and-so. As this man refused to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, Ruth 4 verse 5, the author of the book seems to have decided not to perpetuate this relative's name either. We know him today only as Peloni Almoni, Mr. So-and-so.